For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 99. Wow. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And not only is this our first show of December, what? (laughs) But also our last show in double digits. Oh, yes. We're going to triple digits. Oh, my God. Next, I can't believe we've done almost 100 episodes of this podcast. It's absolutely crazy, but we'll, we'll save the celebrations till next week when we have our very, very special guest on. Now, I don't want to give away too much. I've kind of hinted at this over the last couple of weeks, but I think that next week we are possibly joined by the biggest guest we've ever had on this show. Totally. And, you know, this guy's influenced so many people and been involved in so many different computers and systems. Don't give away too much. (laughs) But everyone we mention it to is like, wow, you've really got this person on your show? Next week, for episode 100, you are not going to be disappointed. Do not miss next week's show. But you're not going to be disappointed with this week's show either, because we have a really interesting guest. Now, obviously, you know, we've talked about this before. We we present the show in Nottingham in a lovely little uh, badly decorated studio here on on a Thursday night we're recording this week. And we're going to be joined in the studio this week because... In our city here, we have the UK's only national video game arcade. Yeah, and you're probably wondering, arcade, what, why is that different from a museum? You know, what, why have they called it arcade? And it's because it's a totally interactive place. And we're going to talk about the history of how the arcade came around. Now, Ian Simons, who is um, one of the founders of the, um, the NVA, is going to be our special guest this week. He's head of the uh, foundation behind it now. And he's going to share some really incredible stories, you know, um, stuff like, Matthew Smith, when he first, you know, came out of retirement, came out of hiding and came oh, to yeah. one of the events here. There's some good love for Jeff Minter in there as well. But also, he's talking about an event that we're involved in, which is coming next year. Yeah, so uh, this is coming up in January. We'll tell you more about that on next week's show and give you a chance to win tickets. So this week, our very special guest is going to be all about the National Video Game Arcade. Really interesting interview with Ian Simons. That's coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. And speaking of events, it doesn't feel like we've had like a more than like two weeks go by without an event this year really does it it's it's been crazy and it's all been thanks to you guys you know we've just done one at leicester retro computer museum with david pleasance and i'm happy to say we raised around a thousand pounds wow okay yeah, all for charity all for the museum and it was just absolutely fantastic we had two weeks notice didn't we yeah we were worried like we thought is anyone gonna come with two weeks notice was it 70 people booked on the whole place was rammed it only holds 70 max i think yeah. it's essentially a sellout show wasn't it really yeah it was just absolutely fantastic and we got you know a, a candid interview with david pleasance and he kind of spilled the beans on everything going on and ah. Oh. It's just great. David's obviously used to be the managing director of Commodore um, in the UK. So he's got a book coming out. He shared some stories from that. Some really good stuff. And actually, I think uh, I might see him eager lads. They filmed it. So it should be on YouTube, actually. If, uh, if I can find it, I'll put it in this week's show notes. And uh, also, um, I did a little video that should be out maybe today or this weekend, all about the uh, CD1200 prototype. You know, that rare Amiga CD-ROM that you found there last year, didn't you? Totally. And you know what the best thing about it was? We could just sit down and we could chat to listeners and... It was just such a nice community feel. Everyone was there. They were all 
chatting to each other. It was just fantastic. And you, you actually organised a little backstage tour for me as well. I went to see all of the archives, which was like, my God, it was, I didn't think, I don't know how they fit all that in that building. Dan's eyes popping out, you know, as he walks around, drooling, bumping into things. It was just like, wow, this place is a fantastic organisation. Do you want to say a Dreamcast? Oh, there's 40 of them stacked up over there. <laughs> Do you want a Commodore 1541 floppy drive? Yeah, we've got about 200 of them stacked to the ceiling. It's like, yeah, I don't know where they get all that stuff from. Got some really good donators, obviously, but it was great to finally get there as well because, like I said, we just lived down the road. It's pretty criminal that I'd not been there till now. Totally, and they're expanding as well, so we got to see the new kind of areas that they were building, the new layout of the museum. You know, the place is going to get bigger. It's going to be a lot more accessible as well. And we had people come from all over the country for that event as well, which was, you know, thank you so Amazing. much. Amazing. Yeah, people like the Amiga lads who drove from like the bottom of London. Yeah, so yeah, so if you did come along and uh, say hello, shake our hands, it was really, really nice to see everybody there. And uh, there are all more events coming up in 2018. Keep an eye on our website, theretrohour.com. Speaking of events that we're going to be at, no rest for the wicked. Oh God! Next weekend we are in London. Oh yes, and this is for something very, very special. Now I never thought I'd be saying this in my life, but we are going to an Amiga movie premiere at a cinema, and the word Amiga is going to be up in light. Have you got your fancy frock ready for the red carpet? No, but my charity <laughs> shop suit will do. <laughs> ready to get puffed. Now this is—I mean, we've covered this movie pretty much from the start, haven't we? When it was just a Kickstarter last year. Yeah, and uh, we know Steve very well. Uh, Steve Fletcher, who's behind it, um, even came to my wedding, actually, you know. Yeah, and he was even filming there. So, like, it's not going to be a Dan wedding video. (laughs) Don't worry about this. (laughs) Might see a bit of it. (laughs) He's been filming for this whole time, so he's just got some amazing interviews with people. Now, if you haven't heard about the film, it's called um, The Commodore Story, Changing the World Eight Bits at a Time. And really, this is a labour of love because... When he set this Kickstarter up um, at the start of last year, I think it was, he was talking about how, you know, he's a lifelong fan of Commodore and he wanted to meet all the people that he could that were involved in Commodore. So he's gone around the world. Every time, you know, I drop in an email or chat to him on Facebook, like, where are you today? Oh, I'm in California today. Oh, I'm in Japan today. And he's like, yeah, he's well, I saw him at Amiga Germany as well. Yeah. And, you know, just bu- keep bumping into him everywhere. He's been at so many shows and even he's been, uh, he's done some stories of uh, hanging out with that Leonard Tremiel. Oh, my God. You know, Jackson. Yeah. And- yeah, yeah. Very jealous. And also Dave Haney's in here, Bill Hurd, RJ Michael, he hangs out at his house filming some stuff. So I can't wait to see this movie. We're in it as well, you and I. And, uh, um, that's not going to put the listeners <laughs> off, is it? <laughs> only, only a little bit, I think. Uh, you probably edit that bit out anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's coming up. It's a two-hour movie. And that is actually going to be getting its premiere next weekend. So there's not much of a turnaround on this if you want to come. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, we've let you know a little bit late. Uh, but this is going to be happening at the Genesis Cinema. And we've actually got some tickets to give away. Now, if you haven't been to the Genesis Cinema before, um, it's in East London, nearest tube stations, the Whitechapel and uh, Stepney, Stepney Greens. It's pretty central. Yeah. And we've actually got four tickets. So if you want to come along, um, you must be available next Saturday. So that is um, December the 9th. And you must be able to get to London. I think the premiere is at 1 p.m. Yep, so make sure you make it on time. Yeah, so yeah, you don't want to miss a start. Uh, so if you are available and you want to come along, we've got a little form that you can fill in at theretrohour.com. I'll put ticket links in there as well if you want to book some, um, but I think it, it is filling up pretty quick. But Steve has very kindly offered us, he said, you know, four tickets for listeners of the Retro Hour podcast. So obviously but with it happening next weekend, we can't run this competition for very long. So hopefully you're listening to this as soon as it comes out. Competition is going to close on Tuesday evening. So that's Tuesday the 5th of December at midnight. So you've got till then, we'll pick out one winner who will win four tickets on Wednesday morning. So, uh, you know, only obviously apply for this if you're going to be free on Saturday afternoon and can get to London. And you 
know, this film's like, I think it's a great follow-up to Bedrooms to Billions, the Amiga Years, or Viva Amiga. You know, it's it's another angle of this kind of Commodore story. And oh, it's just going to be fantastic. And a very personal one as well, which is... Yeah, nice, yeah, yeah. He's, he's relating it to the experiences and the kind of... You know, the feelings that you got around it rather than a literal history. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, you know, there's room for many types of documentary, but like I said, some of them have just been like, this is how this chip works. This is, you know, a bit more like an investigation of the hardware. But even watching Steve's Kickstarter video when that came out, he's talking about the experience of when he got his first Vic 20 and like taking it out of the box and, you know, setting up the keyboard. And and the command line and the basic and the kind of, yeah. Yeah, so I I can't wait to see this film. So if you can come along next weekend and you'd like to win some free tickets, head to our website, theretrohour.com. Now, that website is also the same place you need to go to if you'd like to earn your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame, which is obviously quite an accolade, isn't it, you know? So you've got the Hall of Fame. Now, all you have to do to find your place in the Hall of Fame is to leave a little donation into the running of this show. And actually, if you did one this weekend, it would be very well timed because um, our second birthday is coming up in a few weeks. Website renewals due, sound card premiums due, all our bills are going to need to be paid next week. January is the one, isn't it? Yeah, so anything you donate will obviously go towards that and be massively appreciated. Uh, we've got a PayPal link, Ethereum, Bitcoin, you can do all of those. Litecoin, yeah. Anything, you, uh, anywhere you can pretty much um, on, on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. Put your name in as well if you'd uh, like to have a mention in the Hall of Fame in the coming week. Totally. Now then, should we get into some stories? Yeah, now this one looks really interesting. The Retro Blocks. You've found a lot of these kind of stories over the over the last year or so. These kind of like new systems that are like retro consoles. And they can play various things. Now, this one though is quite interesting, I think. It's called the Retro Blocks. It wants to be the virtual console for all of your old games. Now, again, um, I think we've covered systems that have done this in the past. I, but it, yeah, I'm looking at it and it really brings back memories. But I, I think it's it, it must be new. Well, this one, I mean, it's got an optical drive on there, so it can use, you know, um, PS1, Sega CD, and it's also got, you know, emulation built in for stuff like the Nintendo, Atari 2600, Mega, all the usual stuff. And a cartridge slot as well. Yeah, and it's got two, um, you know, D9 connections on the front there for joysticks and, uh, you know, Mega Drive controllers and that kind of thing. What's different about it is, though, is it has online functionality. Okay. So... If you look at the, um, this is on Kotaku, there's actually a shot of what the interface looks like here. It's very, very slick looking, actually. It reminds me a bit, a bit of Cody, actually. It looks a bit Cody-esque. I, I think, think we may have covered a really early version of this, but um, it seemed to me, I remember, 100 episodes now, my brain's yeah. going a bit bad, <laughs> a bit fried, but um, it's, they were in separate blocks before. I think that may, I mean, there's been so many of these. It yeah, may yeah. be a development of yeah, something maybe. different. But, I mean, how this differs is... It has the online element, so it means it's got Twitch streaming built into it. Oh, that's good. What, with your original games? With your, oh, yeah, your original wow. games, retro games that you, you buy on their store that's as well. That's a game changer, that is, definitely. Because I, I love Twitch, but actually streaming retro consoles is a headache. You've got to find a way to hook them up to your capture card. Well, how much is your Elgato that you actually use? Yeah, that card, it cost me about 100 quid. But yeah, so if you include that price into this, you know... You, save you on doing that and again it's like um you know it doesn't support all resolutions either you know some consoles put out funky resolutions and it won't work with them Mm. so this is a way if you want to stream old games dead easy way doing it and the user interface is nice and they've also got a store on there as well where you know retro developers can sell games direct on the system but there's also something i find interesting reading a bit more into this i don't think it's implemented just yet but also they're looking at ways that you could play old school two-player games online okay so That'd be quite cool. Well, imagine they're, they're saying it's got a hybrid emulation mode as well, which means that uh, cartridges with special chips like the um, AM2 one 
that was used for like Virtual Fighter or you know Star Fox or Super FX chips. Super and all FX, that. yeah, you know that they could be implemented. Yeah, which is pretty cool. And because it's online, you know, it's connected to the internet, it can get updates and stuff like that. But I, I just think it'd be awesome if uh, you know being able to play like Chaos Engine. But on the Amiga online with someone else around the world. Yeah, you know? without having an old Amiga hooked up, then yeah. a capture card, then a output, and you know, then you've got to get all the audio pipe through there and everything. It can become a, a cable nightmare. Now, apparently they're looking at doing a Kickstarter for this, um, probably starting in April 2018. They haven't put a price on it just yet, but the the only statement they've got is they're promising it won't be as much as a Nintendo Switch. So that's, <laughs> that's about $300, so it's going to be under $300. About oh, that's good. So, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely worth keeping an eye on that, though. I think it's nice to see, especially the online stuff, just for Twitch streaming, that'd be worth buying, wouldn't it? Definitely. So I'll put that in this week's show notes if you want to read more at theretrohour.com. Now, talking of classic consoles... We both love the Dreamcast, don't we? I absolutely love my Dreamcast, even though it's yellow as mouldy teeth. I still love it. <laughs> I think mine might rival it for yellowness, actually. It's looking a bit like mustard now, actually. <laughs> mine need to do some retro writing at some point. But obviously, you know, one of the games everybody remembers on the Dreamcast was uh, Shenmue. Yeah, Shenmue. I, I really remember. That was one when you kind of sat there and you read the official magazines and you saw the screenshots of Shenmue and just didn't believe it was going to be like that. Yeah. And then it came out and you were like, is this the level we're at now? My God. Yeah, it's a cult game, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. Yeah. And obviously, everybody wanted a follow-up, you know, for the last, like, what, 15 years or so. Finally, uh, Shenmue 3 was announced, and it is coming out next year. But also, um, they're actually giving the original some love, it turns out. Because obviously, with that long between the original games and the new one, there's a generation who've probably watched videos on YouTube about it, heard about what a reputation Shenmue's got, but maybe haven't got a Dreamcast and never yeah, played it. Maybe there's a generation that kind of, you know, got into there with Resident Evil and all the later stuff, but then uh, Shenmue kind of missed it because it was so early on, wasn't it? It was just leaps and bounds ahead of everything. Well, it was about, yeah, what, 2000, 2001, was it 2002? I mean, it was around that era, wasn't it? Early 2000s. But they're talking here, so apparently what they're going to be doing is, as well as Shenmue 3 that's coming out, there's going to be a Shenmue 1 and 2 combo pack HD upgrade coming for the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. Oh, this is smart. Do you think this is like kind of getting the new generation prepped up for Shenmue 3? It makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think it's one of those games where, say you're like a teenager, you've probably heard about it because of the YouTubers and people that you watch, and you've probably seen the hype for the new game. And you might be curious, but, you know, maybe your dad won't let you touch his Dreamcast. <laughs> but, you know, so this is a good way of getting them now. Well, it's uh, expensive to buy, isn't it, on its own? You yeah. know, and Shenmue too, to buy a copy of those. I've, I've seen them at shows for 80 to 90 or even over 100. Yeah, and by the time you bought the hardware and all that, and, you know, it, it, it's a good way to get these classic games in front of a new audience that will be curious about them. Now, apparently there's been, like, listings um, revealed on some online retailers for these packs on PS4 and Xbox One. I don't think it's been officially announced yet or any pricing or anything, so it could just be a rumour, maybe some incorrect listings, but I think it makes sense that they're oh, going to yeah. do it. So. No, that, that would be really cool. And I think it's good because obviously Sega must be getting a bit of a dosh from that and Sonic Mania and stuff, and it's kind of... Their old franchises seem to be saving them at the moment. Yeah, respecting the legacy. Yeah. Now, you know if you um, use emulators, do you, do you ever use emulation? Uh, yeah, I use emulation a little bit. Yeah, I, I don't use it massively because a lot of the games I'm playing are, are modern remakes and this yep. kind of stuff. But yeah, I do I do use it when needed. I'm, I'm a bit of a uh, kind of software nerd, so I use it more for software than gaming. What would you say is the best controller for retro games if Ooh, you emulate it? Oh, the best controller uh, for me, it's the Mega Drive pad. 
I always love the Mega Drive pad and uh, the, the squareness of the SNES one was just too much for me. The hugeness of the N64 as well wasn't good. Well, here there's an article on Lifehacker and they're talking about the best con- controllers to use for retro gaming emulation. So obviously, you know, using a keyboard mm. isn't the best way to play games that were made for the Mega Drive or the, the SNES, for example. And they've actually gone through and reviewed stuff like the... Um, you know, the Buffalo Classic USB gamepad. There's also stuff like the um, the RetroLink Nintendo 64 USB-enabled wide controller. So a lot of these like classic controllers have been remade by other companies with USB connectors on the Well, end. actually, a lot of people are saying here, as it feels like older controllers, they mentioned the Xbox One controller, and that's the one that I use for all of my gaming at the moment, yeah. just because it's so comfortable. And like they're saying, it doesn't feel like one of the old ones. And they're, they're kind of right. It we feels... need a D-pad, don't you, for Mega Drive games? Yeah. And the D-pad it's on the Xbox One. It's got a D-pad, but it's, it's underneath. Not, yeah. yeah, it's not yeah. the most comfy, is it? No. Um, but they've gone through a list here, and they've actually tried out various types of games and give their verdict on what games they think you know suit which controllers. Cool. So they've said there's the uh, Buffalo Classic USB pad, which if you look at it, it is you know it's it's a SNES controller yeah. essentially yeah. with a different logo on uh, USB controller, and they said that's their pick for 2D games. You know that's one that works best for uh, the the old platform that kind of thing I got a bit further down the list uh, for 3D games um, the Sony DualShock 4 wireless controller for the PS4 they've gone with that and then what is quite interesting is um, there's a few comments in the bottom here people saying that you can you know because they've kind of forgot about this in the article that there are you can get these off eBay quite cheap um, you can get adapters that will let you use your original controllers via USB Hey, you know what I'd love to use? One of those old, I never got into these, but flight simulators. Yeah. You know, those old giant ones where you had like the machine guns on the side and absolutely everything. <laughs> What's that tank game on the original Xbox that had one? Do you remember that? Steel, like, Steel yeah, Battalion. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have one of those, but on a modern yeah. game, like hacked in. That would be a fantastic thing. See, I don't use emulation a lot, but I did get some of the um, the USB version of the, uh, the Competition Pro joysticks mm. when they came out. Yeah. They're actually really hard to find now. And they've got the nice clicky micro switches on there as well. And I, I remember playing like some old Commodore and Amiga games using that when it first came out. But because I did a video on YouTube, like, you know, it's embarrassing to look at now. It was like 10 years ago. Um, but I'm actually crap at all the games I'm playing with it. <laughs> Wasn't until after I did the video, I, I read a few forums and it turns out there's actually a bug. It, it used a really bad USB controller. So oh, there's a lag of okay. half a second. So it might have been even better using one of the cheapy adapters and an original one. Yeah, so that is one thing you've got to look out for if you're doing USB. It's, it needs to have a good chip in there that's got low latency. Otherwise, you're playing, and if there's even a half a second lag in like fast-paced you know, arcade games and platformers, it can mess you it's up. It's so noticeable. Like I, I'm using this Steam Link at the moment, which links through... And there's no, through my own network, so yeah. I can play uh, on my home TV, and there's absolutely no latency in it. You know, it's just hit react go and like even with longer cables i remember you got a bit of latency sometimes on controllers you'd yeah. use an extension yeah. <laughs> and it'd be like a couple of minutes later <laughs> i had one actually for the mega drive that was um a big like you know adapter literally that let you do it across the room must have been about 10 meters long yeah. but then the left and right reversed i was like oh, as soon as it's gone wrong it must be shorted out or something <laughs> so yeah it wasn't the best but i think with this list um it's, it's all subjective, isn't it, really? Totally, totally. It's to your preference, like with my hands as well, because I do a lot of piano and stuff. I think the controllers need to be really comfortable. And I'd love to go with the old square ones, but like, they wreck my hands. If I did a, 
a Jaguar <laughs> one, mm. I'd just be gone. You know? But then there are some games like if you're playing, you know, Super Mario 64, you'll want to use the N64 controller because it's made for that with that yeah, analog yeah, stick. Yeah, Goldeneye, you can't yeah. play that without that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so some, there are some games that are designed for certain controllers. But again, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you make a good point there as well. So I, I know how much the DualShock controllers, you know, on the PlayStation 1, 2 and 3, they're really well respected. I never liked those controllers. But also, have you have you spent time off a controller and then gone back onto it and it started to hurt your hands? And, yeah. you, and you have to start to relearn and force yourself to use that. <laughs> the zip stick on the Amiga, I loved that joystick when I was a kid. If I play Lotus 2 now on it for more than five minutes, my hand's like, ah! Yeah, it's, his layer of hard skin has kind of gone. <laughs> and just cramping my hand. And all yeah. that. Maybe your hands are bigger now and they're made for kids or something. I don't know. There's probably a bit of that in there as well. But yeah, again, I think, you know, whatever works for you works for you, really, doesn't it? In terms yeah. of controllers. But I'll put that list in our show notes if you want to check it out for a few trackables, ideas. Trackables, trackables, bring them back. <laughs> oh, you don't imagine all the dirt that's in them coming around here. Yeah. Marble madness. Now, before we get into this week's special guest, um, obviously, we're going to be talking about the uh, National Video Game Arcade. Um, and one of our good friends is actually setting up a really interesting project in the Netherlands. Oh, yeah. So this is Bart Tahar, who you've probably heard quite a lot because he, um, he's always donating and always chatting to us. And he's just a lovely guy. I met him in Amiga, Germany, yeah, which was just fantastic. And he's opening a home computer museum. Now, this is a unique kind of museum because a lot of museums cover consoles. They cover kind of games. But home computing is a very special kind of, I'd say, European thing apart from the Apple IIs and yeah so this museum's going to be celebrating it and he's just got a Kickstarter out there and the kind of goal is 17k which I think is pretty reasonable for a museum he's got 34 days to go yeah and uh, this is going to be based in Helmond in the Netherlands which is uh, in Eindhoven and it looks really good I mean he's got a lot of video here because this actually grew out of Bart's personal collection yeah, I think Bart's collection just got so big that he goes, why don't we make a museum? Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah my, my wife suggests that to me sometimes. <laughs> um, but again, I mean, his synopsis is kind of like, you know, he wants to cover the last 40 years of home computers. And looking through, I mean, his machines all look in nice condition. He's got some great stuff here as well. You know, like you said, he's got the Apple II um, in there as well. He's got the you know, Amiga 500. He's got a few of those set up on a table as well. Some really interesting stuff like the Tex- Texas Instruments machines, the Laser 310. Never heard of that in my life. Even stuff like the Webit. Do you remember that? The Webit internet computer? Yeah, yeah. Like, you never see them anymore. And a lot of these are, are boxed, original, good condition. And I, I love stuff like this. It's even got a little uh, exhibition about, you know, mice he wants to put in there as well. Like, computer mice that you probably haven't seen for years. You know, we'd be the guys that travel to go and see this. Like, he's saying, where do the funds go? And he's already got the building yeah. and location. So this is for the building setup, like walls, circuits, lights, tables, uh, alarm system. And, you know, it's kind of quite reasonable for a museum, I think. Really good, achievable goal here. Now, this is um, it's going to be based in Helmond in the Netherlands. That's... It's close to Amsterdam, is it? Uh, well, Eindhoven's the main city, but you yeah. don't, Netherlands is small, mate. You yeah. can just go around very quickly. And it's always a good time there anyway, isn't it? as, oh, as we definitely. know from experience. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you need to support projects like this. This guy, you know, he wants to preserve history of what made us what we are, really. Totally, so. and I think this is this is totally unique. Home computing. Yeah, so if you want to back that Kickstarter, um, you've got about 34 days left to do it. Um, he's got about 2,000 at the moment, but, you know, what, what was his goal on here? Uh, 17. 17. So, uh, you look, 
that's easily doable in a month, um, especially this time of year as well. Everyone feels a bit more generous around Christmas. Don't totally. Uh, worthwhile cause. We'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Should we put it on Facebook and Twitter as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll spam it everywhere for him. Absolutely. So good luck with that, Bart. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that as well. And definitely do a visit over there. That'd be awesome. Oh, yeah. Right then, guys. Well, thank you for checking out episode number 99 of the Retro Hour podcast. We're going to have a bit of a party next week, aren't we? 99, 100 coming up, yeah. Bit of a party when we record next week's show? Well, I've got a couple of surprises that you don't know about. Oh, no, I don't like surprises. (laughs) Does it involve me wearing a blindfold? No, I think it involves food, Dan. All right, that's fine, that's fine. It's not like, nothing to do with Amish Celeb, get me out of here, is it? No, no, no. It's not like you, all these locusts. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay, so it's going to be a big one next week, and we have got a huge guest on next week's show. Um, I really want to tell you, but I I think we should give it a little secret. We might drop a few hints on social media over the next week do you think yeah totally yeah, i'm sure we can and we'll have full crew uh you know joe's coming and joining us oh, it's gonna yeah. be great and then our christmas quiz coming up in a couple of weeks as well oh, yeah so, yeah it's gonna be a good month next month for the retro hour podcast so i uh, appreciate you joining us every week guys of course you can get the show from our website theretrohour.com your favorite podcast clients itunes overcast stitcher soundcloud we YouTube. got another review on stitcher thank Did we? you oh. yeah very nice one well that, yeah honestly that's really appreciated any reviews we get help us get up the charts and get us in front of more people so please do keep them coming in on your platform of choice right guys we'll see you next week for the big 100 and right now all about the national video game arcade with our special guest ian simons and we'll see you next friday ciao you're listening to the retro hour podcast and it is our pleasure to welcome this week's very special guest and it's always nice to have someone in the studio with us as well rather than on the phone or over skype Welcome to the show, Ian Simons. Thank you very much for having me. It's brilliant to be here on the 99th show. I know, yeah. I can't believe we've made it this far, Ravi. 99 I, episodes. I can't believe you made it through the snow and the rain. It was so <laughs> it cold was, today. It was pretty exciting atmospheric effects out there this evening, yeah, yeah, let me tell you. We appreciate the commitment. Absolutely. No, absolutely. It's an honour. Now, Ian's actually in the studio with us because uh, we do record the show in Nottingham. And we do have, it is, I'm correct in saying it's the UK's only national video game arcade, isn't it? I, I hope so. Yeah. There'll be a terrible trade descriptions <laughs> outrage if there's another national video game arcade. Yeah, absolutely. We're the, we're the first in the UK, the first, I think, anywhere. Uh, yeah, first national video game arcade. And what's your role there? Uh, so I am the director of the National Video Game Foundation, which is a not-for-profit um, organisation that runs the, the MVA. And we do a kind of other projects with the galleries around the world world and we do kind of education work and basically what we're about is developing the role of video games in this is a mission statement in uh, culture education and society so which basically means you know celebrating video games for different people for kind of everybody well we have a question that we ask every single one of our guests and that was what was your first ever computer experience like the first time you ever saw one or played with one yeah so it was, well, yeah, I don't know what year it would have been, it was in the very early 80s and my brother, who's 12 years older than me, um, came home with a VIC-20 nice. and a copy of Arcadia, one of Imagine Software's early works. Wow. Uh, and also I think he had Wacky Waiters as well, which is really early Eugene Evans mm-hmm. um, thing. Yeah, and, he put, and, and we put that on the telly at home, obviously we want a telly, and it was, it, was, it was Arcadia in particular. I remember being like, a, I remember sitting and watching it you know, um, just as a just as a set of kind of patterns where you know kind of flying around, it was really really exciting. Uh, so that was it. It was a, yeah, it was a Vic Twenty for me. And was it that must have been a magical experience then when you were a kid? Yeah, it was, and it was um, 
I'm trying to remember, because my dad didn't really get into computers until quite a few years later, so it was mostly me and my brother. And there was a kind of gap, because we moved abroad for a bit. And then when we came back, it was straight into the Commodore 64. So we sort of skipped the sort of dull Vic stuff and got then right back into it when Mastertronic was, you know, was becoming a thing. And all, all yeah. the, like the golden age of Llamasoft and all, all, basically all the best games uh, that were ever written in that, in that kind of window was, yeah, when I was, when I was a young teenager. So were you more into, was it just gaming you were into, or did you get into, like, product? Activity and coding and what were you um, So I sort of dabbled with BASIC a little bit. And, and Simon's BASIC, of course, yeah. came out for the Commodore, which was which seemed like an opportunity not, not to be missed, to, tr- like to try and learn that a bit. And I did bits of it. I mean, my brother's an engineer and, and, a, and a programmer, and I never quite followed it through as much as he did. So I, I never really got beyond, you know, um, typing in code from magazines and learning bits of BASIC stuff. Um, so for me, for this Commodore, it was pretty much all about the games. And then um, the music maker, you know, the keyboard overlay thing. For yeah, the, the plastic 64, thing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, properly amazing. So you had a really sharp fingernails to be able to try and press the um, press the keys down. And those so old uh, Sid sounds as well. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, well worth uh, well worth celebrating. And um, yeah, it, it was that really for me. It was all about um, pirating pirating cassettes from other kids. I think the day we learned about, you know, tape-to-tape copying actually worked with computer games as well. That suddenly increased our game library massively, didn't it? Yeah, it was magical. And, and, then, and then trying to work out why some worked and what didn't. And I remember some like, kid at school was saying things like, no, you have to, like, if you stand further away from the tape deck <laughs> while you do it, that, that helps you get you close to it. It, like, upsets it. And then mess around with the EQ in it to try and make it work. And all these, like, crazy, you know, bits of witchcraft to try and make <laughs> the thing take. And then turbo loaders came out, and again, twice as hard and twice as fragile. But it was it was tough. It was tough in those days. I mean, did you move on to, like, these 16-bit machines, like the ST and the Amiga and stuff like well, that? Well, yeah, a bit, a bit. So I use the ST for music a lot. So my previous life was as a uh, musical director in commercial theatre to some of my early 20s. And a lot of those shows were run off an ST. Um, so, because they put a lot of, you know, sort of be a full band, so you'd have Cubase running in the corner with a, you know, with a with a sequ- with a sampler off it, uh, running a lot of the kind of string pads and all that sort of stuff, and a live percussionist, a live bassist, and you'd be playing the other stuff. Yeah, and I did. I just did like four or five years worth of pantos with with well, off off an ST. Um, nice. Yeah, so I did that and bits of gaming, and then, and then for me it was like the Amiga a bit, but I was at university and I sort of drifted out of it and just got into kind of music and other stuff really. So I didn't really rejoin video games until probably like the P- like PS2 GameCube sort of time to be honest. So um how did you kind of get involved in this uh, Nottingham gaming scene then? Well, so Screenplay was a brilliant festival that ran in mid-2000s, um, around the sort of time when I was just starting to write about video games. So we'd, we'd done lots of work in, like, CD-ROMs and all that kind of, like, art end of internet stuff, when everybody was getting into the internet around, like, 1995. And um, we started organising events um, about video games. And I remember the reason we did that was because I was I was reading some stuff about early VR, you know, like active worlds and those that really early stuff wasn't like wasn't very good. Mm. And I remember thinking, this is this a this isn't very good, and b this is not this is, isn't as good as Doom. Mm. I remember I remember talking to some academic, I can't remember what university you're at, but you're going like, you know, this this is this is really flaky. Have you played Doom? Because this is really flaky, and there's this thing over here that is a distributed synchronous virtual reality environment, and if you can get past like the the shotguns. This is a really amazing, amazing, you know, achievement. Why, why isn't this being kind of written about and considered? Like, why, basically, why aren't you using this because it works mm. rather than this thing that fell over every kind of two minutes? So I started kind of thinking more about games and how we could, um, 
how, how like how we could find out more about the people that made them. Because the thing about growing up in the early eighties is you knew who Jeff Minter was and you knew the Oliver Twins were, and their names were on the front of the boxes. Which and it always struck me as nuts, nuts, nuts that that kind of disappeared, you know, and and been able to see the kind of fingerprints the people who made. These... I, I guess teams came in there, didn't they? Well, yeah, but you know, teams have sort of leaders, and teams even teams have identities, and even the teams started to become fairly invisible, right? You didn't necessarily always anticipate the next game from a studio because publishers got kind of bigger and bigger. That kind of individuality was really eroded from it, which I really hated, and we, one of the things we, you know, wanted to kind of pull back. So, so we started inviting video game um, makers who we thought were interested in come and do talks in Nottingham and the, the big one we did that kind of kicked off the Game City stuff and the involvement of screenplays we, did, we invited Jeff Minter to come and do um, a talk in the Mowgli Azam um, he was just in the middle of doing Unity do you remember he was doing that GameCube project with Lionhead um, and, um, and he'd just, he just done I think the, the visualiser for the 360 yeah. You know, because he did that on the back, like using the VLM stuff. On the, the Jaguar as well, didn't he? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So he's got the parallel things of like psychedelic shooters and the virtual light machine stuff, these two threads that you can trace back yeah. through his whole career <laughs> that's, that are just, just amazing to sort of see how that evolves from like psychedelia on the Vic yeah. all the way through to this. It's just brilliant. And um, so he came and did this show at the Mowgli Zan where everybody had a load of curry, loads of people turned up. And he just he just talked about his career and what he was doing, and um, talked about Unity, and talked about like meeting Prince and showing him the showing the virtual light machine. It was, it was kind of brilliant, and, um, and 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 was just really inspiring. And uh, and screenplay was happening around that sort of time. He did like Paul did some amazing stuff with Matt. Um, uh, Matt Smith, and, and of course Frank. Your, yeah, yeah, because yeah, I was a little scamp running around screenplay because yeah, yeah, yeah. my dad helped organise it as well. And um, we had, a, oh, I can remember Matthew Smith yeah. arriving and no one had ever seen him for years and there was yeah. this guy just covered in hair sitting in the bar and everyone's going, <laughs> yeah. is this Matthew Smith? And was that after his wilderness years? Yeah, no, yeah. It, it was, was just it, his yeah. emergence, wasn't it? It from was there. really amazing, yeah. And Paul did this amazing interview with Matt Smith um, that was that was just really moving. It was kind of about the games, but also about like being Matt Smith and what it's like. It was, it was a crazy it. event because they yeah. had... Um, we had this thing called Moon Radio, which was before YouTube, and they were interviewing Scott Adams yeah. from America, yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. in a Skype style conversation on fifty six K, probably. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was really, really yeah. good. Really, really good. Um, so yes, yeah, so we sort of did bits of stuff at Scrooper. We started doing a thing called Public Beta. So there's a guy called James Newman, um, Professor James Newman, um, who I met because we invited him to come up and talk in a pub. So we did another thing in a pub following the Jeff thing with Dave Doak, mm, um, yeah. who at that time Free Radical. Yeah, yeah, they were just doing Time Splitters too. Um, a bunch of the core people came over, and Jimmy came over. He was just doing his first like academic book about video games, which is now is like the book that you buy if you're doing game studies called Video Games um, of the Routledge book. That was just about to come out. He came up, did this thing in the pub. We sort of got along, um, and we did a book called Difficult Questions About Video Games together. Um, and the idea was we we did these really childish questions. Um, and asked loads of different people um, and, and kind of collated their answers and put them together. So this question is like, what is a video game? Right? How can you tell if a video game is any good? What is cheating? You know, so like, it's like questions that are seemingly really easy, but actually, actually quite hard. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. really difficult to explain what a video game is, like in concise terms. Yeah. So it was just kind of like, yeah, you know, sort of group work of all these answers to this, um, to these simple questions. That went really well. Um, on the back of that, I did uh, an event at the South Bank Centre. So I pitched to them like, you should, you should, you should do 
stuff with video game makers because they're really interesting. That was the time the BFI were doing lots of interviews with The Guardian, um, with film directors. So we'd, everyone was starting to live stream stuff or, you know, that sort of 2005, 2000. It was like the thing that you did. Um, I said we should do some video games and we did a thing called NTI, non-trivial interaction um, at the BFI South Bank, was the National Film Theatre then. And we had um, Valve came over and Jamie Fristrom, who's the Spider-Man 2 uh, swinging mechanic designer. He's oh, wow. brilliant. Yeah, he's really cool. And um, and obviously Peter Molyneux, of course. A um, bunch of really interesting people. Uh, that went really well. And that sort of suggested that there was this uh, gap in the broader calendar to do a you know a, a bigger festival, which is what Game City kind of evolved into. And I guess around that time, I mean, gaming had been around long enough to actually have a history and yeah. have some stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are enough people who, you know, could... There's more than one generation, I think, was the key thing. Yeah. So you got people who could kind of reflect on it and argue about it, rather than there's people like me who just, you know, go talk about Commodore, or I can talk about Commodore and Spectrums and this kind of that. Um, and it got to that point, and there was at least two, you know, two accounts of what video game history was. So it started to get, like, a bit more interesting. as a bit of, you know, sort of tension, um, which makes it more interesting to talk about. Um, so, so, yeah, it was all about celebrating, and all of our stuff in, up to now has all been about exposing and celebrating this fact that that games are made by people, which is what this podcast is about, right? Which is what the interesting stuff about games is about and which generally is the bit that the games industry isn't about. You know, it's the thing it kind of hides. Is yeah, the, the behind f- the scenes, you know. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. So it's that, you know, A, a sort of look inside the kitchen of how they're made, um, you know, technically and all that sort of stuff, but also just how it feels to make a video. Like, why would you make a video game? There's so many things you could choose to do that are much easier. Why are you choosing to do this? You know, and what, and what is it? And that's sort of, kind of the Matt Smith sort of stuff was so was so interesting from that. Like, why, what, why would why would you do this? Because the people who started to make video games didn't they didn't really have reference points. Like, when I was a kid, I like I wanted to be in a band because I like the Beatles. You know, because the Beatles existed. When 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 you started to make video games like it was it there wasn't the, the reference points are really different there wasn't like you could point you, you had to invent the genre you right yeah, yeah. Act, which is out of scratch you know? really 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 interesting you know and hearing people's accounts of of how, of how they formed that industry um and how they learn and how they reconciled you know their life with doing that and look like the oliver twins are really interesting for that um it's just it's just endlessly fascinating to me and and um and, that, and that's what we try to do with Game City, that's what we try to do with the NBA, we try to do with everything we've ever done, is, is expose and celebrate this fact that games are made by people, people like you, you know, and, and, and helping other people see that they could do it. And particularly people that aren't just, you know, middle-class white boys like me. It's like different people can start to make games. And I think that's so important. I think games would be so much more trusted, so much more trusted by everybody from the government down um, if if they spoke more, you know, to the rest of the world, got us a bit highfalutin. Once, really. <laughs> well, why do you think Nottingham is a good location then for a gaming festival? Um, so there's a really practical answers to that. Nottingham is sort of big, but at the same time not. It's got a market square, um, but it hasn't kind of donutted out like a lot of cities have. Yeah. So, like, pr- really practically, you haven't got to do that much in Nottingham to really animate the whole city. And that's, you know, from a practical point of view, that's that's a big consideration. So I, I always, you know, we looked at the stuff they did in London because we spoke to London about doing Game City there first. I'm really, really glad 
we didn't in the end because it's just it would have been impossible you know you do it's just a blip if you did something like game city in trafalgar square or whatever it would never work not to mention the expense well. not yeah. to mention the yeah. expense yeah. and not and all of that i mean why would you do anything in london anyway it's nice that london started to catch up with nottingham in terms of its game culture recently of course but um but um it's um it's in the middle of the country it's easy to get to i tell you the one thing that delighted us because we always thought it would be really difficult to get anyone to come to Nottingham right because mm. it's not London um, and as soon as you anyone that isn't from England so like Alexi um, Pajitinov came over Game City 2 and Cater came over and Lorne Lanning came over the first one it was so it was so it's so easy to get an American to come to Nottingham Robin Hood yeah because <laughs> yeah, if, if they've ever been to England right they've probably been to an event in London they got off the plane went to a conference went to the hotel went to the thing went to the trade show whatever and went back home Nottingham um Right, it's it's like it's Robin Hood and it's like it's old and it's so old. And the first thing Alexi did was want to go to the trip because he's heard that the oldest pub in you know oldest pub in the world yeah. is here. Um, and this is like the stuff that people want. So it's really hard to get people from Guildford to come. You know, people from, people from London to come, as it always is. But it's really, we always had great audience attendance from, you know, the West Coast and Japan because they, they wanted to see stuff that's old. Nothing's old in LA. You know? that, that's not, I mean, you actually, that is exactly, we did an event in Leicester the other week and like there was a comment on that Facebook page, I would have come, but it's an hour and 20 minutes away. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, well, famously, Quentin Tarantino used to hang around at Broadway. Yeah, He'd yeah, be yeah, walking yeah. around with all Robin Hood arrows and, and all the kind of uh, tourist <laughs> stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think not people. People, people, people outside of Nottingham, um, like love it, love it. The kind of you know, like brand Nottingham and the thing that it stands for. It's, it's, it's got such a good reputation around the world. It's only in the UK. Uh, we're not <laughs> yeah. com- we're not confident enough with it. Yeah. But we have never had any problem at all. Quite the opposite, getting um, anyone from the states to come. They totally want it. We, and actually, we didn't predict that. That wasn't like some clever thing that we did. Yeah. Like that was, we were we were really surprised and delighted. But as soon as we caught on to that, I was like, okay, yeah, it's brilliant. This is this is fine. Well, who have been some of your most interesting guests that you've had and spoken to, and any, any memorable stories? Yeah. So, um, so obviously, Kato Takahashi was a, a great friend of the festival. Uh, we did quite a lot of stuff, and we tried to build a playground in Woodthorpe Park with Kato. Um, it didn't work out at the end because of a bunch of things, mostly a massive economic recession happening at the time that we were trying to raise money to build a crazy the craziest playground in the world um so he's been fantastic um loved english again like loved english pubs particularly the peacock was like absolutely his kind of favorite place um alexi um yeah loved loved how how old the place was eric shy came over he did a thing at game city five i think it was where he did a collaboration with a chef to do make a playable meal. Oh wow! Yeah, it was really interesting. So he did like anatropic three D um, for the placemats, so people would wear the you know wear the three D lenses and have to kind of arrange the food to unlock the thing to get to the next course. And we, we, we were always into trying to do weird collaborations. So what would happen if you put a game developer with a farmer or, or, or whatever? <laughs> we we almost we we were so close. The thing that didn't happen once was we had a farm organised. Uh, and like tractors and, and a coach. I mean, we were going to do this thing with Peter Molyneux. Um, we talked about this, but it was like it was all set up, and the audience was going to be put on a coach. We'd take them out to this farm, and it was going to be this like day at a farm, but you wouldn't know it was him until it came on. And, and then because they have like GPS controlled tractors and all this sort of thing, it was sort of like <laughs> live populist thing. But it, anyway, it didn't happen in the end. But um, well, Farmville came out a few years later, so the, the idea wasn't. All I'd about like to think either. that was our <laughs> Yeah, it was stuff like that. We, we like we, we the Game City stuff was always about. It's really important that we're all like in a place together. Mm. 
not all in a place together like playing a game, but all in a place like a room or a market square or a church or a cinema or a wherever. Like it's all about celebrating um, like people being as a festival. Sort of, you know, it's what festivals are for, right? And I think we always try to challenge the idea that the way to explain video games and excite people about video games is just to get a load of video games and hand them to people and hope that they know what a controller is, you know. And, and, and a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't. And, and like, we need to help people with that because they're complicated things. I think a lot of people as well don't realise... You know, I, I talk to people who say, I'm not into video games, but they play games on the phone and stuff, which, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you are a gamer if you're doing that. Right. Yeah, so. I, I, absolutely. And... and, and um, the thing that we tried to do with Game City, and, and, and particularly at the MVA, is to help people um, understand what they could be and what their kind of potential was. And that the, like the spectrum of what video games can be is so much broader than the stuff you're sold. So much broader than the stuff you're sold. And, um, you know, to try and raise visibility of different sorts of work is increasingly, actually, that's the thing that we're really, really passionate about. Well, uh, I remember you did lots and lots of kind of experimental stuff. They had like... Um, We've done some stupid yeah. <laughs> What is it, a giant zombie world record attempt? Mm. I remember that. Lego guitar. Uh, a brick stock. Brick stock, yeah. yeah. That yeah. Was a, what was the zombie thing then? Well, it was, it was... So Game City 3, we did a thing on Halloween where you know Jonathan Coulton, who did the Stay Alive portal, um, yeah. portal song, right? So he came over and he does a song called Re Your Brains which is like a, zomb- a zombie sing-along thing. And we thought it would be cool to get him to come over. And we were doing this zombie world record attempt where we filled the market square with thousands of people to take the world record for the world's largest gathering of zombies. I don't know if you've ever done a world record attempt. Have you ever been involved in one? We, did, we, we, smashed some, we did a world record attempt of smashing pumpkins recently. That was, that was Right. Did you have the Guinness people there? Uh, we had to send a video off to right. them afterwards. So the thing that shocked us mm. is, like, it's not, a, like, it's really serious. Yeah. That world record is really serious. And we, and we had so thousands of people there and they're all dancing Jonathan Coulton's doing a sing-along and all the rest of it. I can't remember. There's like a couple of thousand people in the square. And um, you finish the whole thing. You have to count them all. So it's me and, it's me and Jimmy, as usual, kind of counting all the people, the mayor and the sheriff next to us. Looking, they've, got, they've got dinner in an hour, so they're trying to hurry the whole thing up. <laughs> um, and we get to the end. We go back on stage. Just to give them the number. We've, yeah, we've broken the record. And the Guinness guy goes, yeah, I'm going to subtract four because I saw for vampires and they're not zombies they're not part of zombie. <laughs> they're not part of zombie canon so um yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna subtract four from i mean it was still you know four four hundred over the total of thing but like it's really like, it's really serious with not, a really serious face yeah, yeah, no, it's, no, it's no, not a joke yeah, like you yeah. have to define what is a zombie and how much makeup they need to actually like achieve zombiness it's absolutely crazy um, but that, but that gave us that was great. But for the festival, that was brilliant, right? Because everyone drinking in Nottingham that night was a zombie, mm. which meant that all the bars could suddenly see like a direct line between the stuff that Game City was doing and like value to the city. Um, so our kind of and it was in the press and national press and all this sort of stuff. So our kind of like stock as a festival went went up quite a lot within the city. So yeah, the, the stuff Ravi was talking about. The following year, we did a thing called Game City Squared, which was the fourth one where we it was the first year we put a big tent down. Because um, Nottingham doesn't really have the, the 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 space that you can change into anything that's that sort of size. Yeah, really. and, and not covered space. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. So we ended up putting a tent up because we couldn't solve that problem. You know, because you can't really do the arena because they got stuff on. You can, theaters don't really work. So we ended up putting this massive tent up on the square. And the the original idea was that the um, inside of the tent would change completely every day, like completely. So the first day we did a thing for the 25th anniversary of Elite. 
yeah. where we got like Braben and Bell back together and Rob Holstock who wrote The Dark Wheel who who died actually really sadly a month after didn't he um, uh, he came up we, we, we got everyone who'd ever been involved in Elite to come and do a, 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 an event and we had the Elite Origami you know the story about the Origami no what's that so when um when the game was originally uh, put out in the box with the novel and the star map and all that sort of thing, there was supposed to be some origami, like Cobra origami in it, that mm. you could make your own spaceship. And um, Firebird said, "This like we not we can't we like we can't fit anymore in the box. This is stupid. We're not going to do this." Um, but Ian Bell remembered that this was the thing that happened, and it was the origami was designed by his school friend, this guy called Mark Belitho, who's now a professional origami guy, origamiist. Um, so we tracked down Mark Belitho and got he came back and did all these like new designs, and the public made these hundreds of little elite spaceships. And kind of, it was really beautiful, you know, kind of thing. Uh, and then we tore all that down overnight, and the next day we did this called Crisis Live. It was it was like ill-judged. People nearly died trying to build this thing, <laughs> which was we turned the inside of the tent into a desert. Um, so there's like 14 tons. This is like, you know, so between 11 and 5 a.m., there's people shoveling sand into the tent on the square <laughs> and getting pined. And we had like um, replica firearms being shot at the public and all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, that went in. And then the last day was Brickstock. Um, which was then all the sand came out, so it was the same thing but worse because it's harder. Uh, and then turfed it all over, and we did this Lego music festival thing. We, we, we trying to, we just like we wanted Game City to feel like somewhere else. So when you went into the tent, like you weren't in Nottingham, you were in this bonkers, could be anything. So another world, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was that was that was the idea. But we we yeah we've done some um, dangerous and stupid things over the years. The hardest one. Uh, health and safety advice uh, was trampolines. Um, public and trampolines is a proper problem, which surprises me now, right? Because there's trampoline places everywhere. Yeah, I, I guess they have to get massive amounts of stuff to kind of just yeah. monitor it all. And uh, well, thinking back, that seems pretty weird now because we we did. Do you know Proteus, Ed mm. Key's game? Yeah. Um, so um, we had a rabbit. Um, George Buckingham, I think it was George, made a rabbit mod for Proteus. So you play as a rabbit, so you 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 bounce through it, but you're on a trampoline as you play. And so we had a nightmare trying to get the um, stuff through health and safety to let the public go in public on trial. It was it was by well, we've done stuff with fire and guns and cars and the, by trampolines. Far, yeah, yeah, it was it was. But yeah, you walk into the whole like pro trampoline lobby thing that you don't even realise exists, but it's I think the right to bounce. But yeah. as, as Game City, say it was an annual event. Is it taking a break at the moment? Then you took a break this year for the mm. first time in uh, twelve years. Um, it was pointed out to me that we could take a break, which had ne- never even occurred to me that we knew what we could do. We, I, in retrospect, I think we should have taken a break um, when we opened the NBA because uh, it, we 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 spent we, we built the NBA really really quick, really really quick, like four months or something, and opened it. You know, we've never run an NBA before, and nobody has, but certainly we haven't. And 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 suddenly you're doing that full time, and that opened in March. And then you, it's just full on, and you're trying to work out what an MVA is and how to fix it and how to fix the toilets and, and all, all these new problems, and it's non-stop because it's there all the time. And then we were like, oh, no, we've got to do Game City as well in, like, three months. Oh, God. <laughs> um, and and, and I, think, I, think, I think in retrospect, we probably should have had a couple of years and just worked out because everyone was just exhausted, you know. And, and I don't... I think it's fair to say, I, I don't think we did the best Game Cities for the previous two years for, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um... But I think we felt at the time some, you know, misplaced sense of 
duty or something or muscle memory that we had to be doing it in October. But yeah, we're, we're going to be back again next year. It's, it's nice, really nice to not do it and let the grass grow back, you know. Well, let's talk about the National Video Game Arcade. Mm. How did this, where did the idea come from and why was it needed and how did it start? What was kind of the story then? So Jonathan Smith uh, was one of the guys behind Lego Star Wars. Um, and he started doing Lego Star Wars pretty much around the time we started doing Game City. So they'd been to every festival. I, I knew him really well, and we talked over the years. And he's a, re- you know, he's a really, really good friend and great friend of you know, kind of Nottingham in the festival. And and so he'd watched the festival grow, and obviously they did quite well out of Lego. It's been nice, quite popular. And um, <laughs> and um, and we'd sort of speculated a few times about yeah, what, what what would a place, what would Game City be if it was a place. Right, because the sorts of things that we were doing were were bigger projects, and we're doing stuff with sort of schools, and we were getting into the National Video Game Archive project we did with the Science Museum, got founded, and it was just like bigger stuff that wasn't a festival. Um, and it it just seemed really like the obvious and natural thing to do to to try and make a permanent bricks and mortar home for video games, and and so part of that is about claiming you know the sort of pomposity of going where a, where a, where the home of video games or a museum and it's like got a door and like a roof and stuff like actual you know places for film and art and theaters have mm. video games don't really sort of have that and part of that was just about trying to make it make a sort of community center really um for kind of ideas and people that make you know make these things to come together so so jonathan um um at the end of game city eight um, we, I remember us having, we had breakfast in Delilah on Thingy Street. Uh, I can't remember, I don't know what the name of the street is. Street by the Market Square. Yeah. Um, and um, he was sort of saying, well, yeah, what are you going to do with Game City? What, 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 what are you going to do? I, was, I don't know, we just do it again. We just keep doing it again. That's what we do, right? We just keep doing it every year. And he said, well, you know, I think we should just think about what um, what this this idea of this place could be. Um, so, okay. And this was October because we'd just done the show. And then by... December, we decided we're going to start a company and start an MVA. It was really the, the fast, and, and I think part of the you know the brilliant brilliantness of Jonathan, uh, but also pro- possibly why he and I are not great foils for each other, is that we're both just like, oh, it can't be that hard. Let's just let's just, <laughs> just have a go. It'll be fine. I mean, you know, you, you kind of run through a hedge and come out the other side, and you build an MVA. Be great, and that's pretty much it. the whole thing. Kind of snowballed, snowballed, snowballed. And um, yeah, and then over the next um, year, we made the plan of what there would be, and, and, and got investment, and, and made it happen. Um, and then it opened in yeah in March two thousand and fifteen. And the idea really was to to um, to make a permanent, really public place about video games. It would be about video games are made by people. Anyone can play video games. And the really big idea I think that came into the MVA that wasn't so much in Game City was this idea that everyone can make video games. So the MVA was built by the people who work at the MVA. Like it wasn't often museums you get like an agency from Shoreditch in and they'll do yeah. all the stuff. It's not. Ours is built by the people there. So like Alan and Lex and you know and Joe and, and, and Olivia and all that team. Um, and and they fix it as well when it breaks. And it's we try to make it as sort of transparent as possible. So you should feel when you go to the MVA like you could build the MVA. Do you know what I mean? Like you could have the back of it and see how it works. And trying to capture that. When I was a kid, stuff broke. My dad had the back off. He could never fix it, but he would he would have the confidence to have the back off the video recorder. Well, so. even throughout the building, you've got 
kind of the wires are yeah. all rooted in the same colours, so you can kind of tell, like on a circuit board, the traces. You, you know, that's going to there. This is doing that, and you, you can. Yeah. It's all open. You know, that's the sort of idea that you kind of get in a bit of an X-ray of how it works. So even if you don't know about networks, you can see that they're all in purple. At least you, you sort of see the veins of the building almost. Yeah. You know. Um, and similarly, like when stuff breaks, because it does, because they're computers all the time, we fix it in front of people, and there's no sense of like you know, nurse bring the bring the screens and we'll fix. You just have the back of it, and, and our team will fix it. And and what we were trying to do with that is show people that this it's not hard, mm. like it's not that hard. And this stuff now is also really cheap. I mean, the NBA was built with bits of you know skipped wood and stole wood and bit and stuff from Maplin you know it's 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 within it's within your grasp to be able to make things you know to be able to create and to be able to like put a dent in stuff and that's what we really wanted to kind of engender in the whole thing um so um yeah so that's what we wanted to stand for this idea that you could go there and leave feeling that you that you could make a video game well uh, some of the donations that you've had of yeah. of kind of Made it so you can make a museum upstairs, which has uh, around a hundred pieces of uh, fantastic video game related items. Yeah. So, the, the, and that's a bit of game history, and that's the only bit of the building really that's stuff in glass cases. Mm. So everything else you can touch, you can play, and you can you know you can you know prod it and kick it and mess around with it. And the only bit that's like a museum, as you think of a museum, is that is that bit that gallery. But then also, I think it's not like a traditional museum because it hasn't got the consoles kind of laid out like this version and that version. It's got like the original Doom Master Disc or like yeah. some really weird headset from somewhere. <laughs> so we 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 just we I've literally finished just before. Coming in here, we're, laying, we're doing a book about that exhibition at the moment that's out in March. And the idea is it's a history of video games that's about just like stuff. So everything about here is that's not the games. So Master Discs or like plushy toys or Hayes Mints are in it. Um, well, yeah. There's Spectrum pirated, homemade pirated yeah. Spectrum games with yeah. home-drawn, hand-drawn covers. <laughs> Absolutely. That. That, it's that stuff where you can see like the fingerprints of people. And it's a bit scuffed and it's a bit filthy and you wouldn't want to take it home. But it's like, for me, that's like that's the history of video games. It's, that, it's not... It's like Star Wars, right? All the spaceships are used. You know, it's like everything's like a bit bashed up and, and it's a bit like loved, you know? And that's what that gallery's about and that's what the book's, um, uh, book's about, yeah. Well, some of your recent exhibitions, uh, the, the Oliver Twins one mm. that we went to, is absolutely fantastic. And that was really bashed up and old school. You even had the old <laughs> curtains in there. And... So you, you created the Oliver Twins bedroom in, in your centre? Oh, yeah, well, we didn't... It was an accident, really, because we didn't expect them to have... So the thing about the Oliver Twins that your listeners may already know, but if they don't, they should know, is that they, like, they unlike anybody else, they keep everything. So most developers have thrown out all of their stuff, you know, um, from 30 years ago. They haven't. They've literally kept everything. So, you know, we went through their kind of dizzy archives, and there's these photos of their bedroom of them. It's a famous photo we've all seen. It's like the brown curtains and them sat in the corner. And we go, oh. Yeah, Philip, that's, that's really... It'd be, wouldn't it be great if we had the curtains thinking, you know, that's hilarious, wouldn't it be? And they're, oh, yeah, OK, yeah. And they're also incredibly fast. Um, so then within, like, 30 minutes, he's been up on his loft, you know, and he's... And he's, and he's, and he's and you get a photo back of his loft and the, and the planks that he's standing on is the desk from his bedroom because some, somehow they know where everything came from. And he's found the box with these, <laughs> with these curtains, the actual curtains. So if, yeah, um, which changes the room a lot. So suddenly there is... The Oliver Twins authentic, whatever year it was, 1981 bedroom curtains up in the NBA, along with 
yeah, memorabilia and stuff from their from their lives. Um, but they're brilliant, and um, they're um, the yeah the dizzy room was was it was the first thing we've done at the NBA that was about a specific thing since the jump show, and it's really like the trajectory that we're on at the moment is now we, we know we kind of steady the ship, we know what it is, we want to experiment with looking at specific developers or specific games, and that was the first uh, first one of those. Um, and take as kind of deep a dive as you can, really, um, for both people who love Dizzy and love the Olive Twins, but also people who've just wandered in, thinking, "What? Why are there curtains on the walls? What is this? This is this is weird, isn't it?" Um, but they're brilliant, and their parents are brilliant as well, in particular. I think it's that kind of you know the British gaming story is fantastic, and it hasn't kind of been explored. You know, we we used to talk about it a lot, and then it's mm. kind of gone out of popular culture, and people have seemed to kind of forget about all these fantastic and a lot of them were brothers or twins or kind of so many brothers yeah another pair of brothers as well the collier that yeah. you had um on for the football manager exhibition yeah that's right we did um we just did a football manager exhibition for the dizzy one which opened in september i think it was which was which was much harder to do actually because obviously if you like if you're into football manager you are into football manager um and if you are not it's harder to for some audience, I think to find a way into it because yeah. it's not like an egg it looks so so boring as well, doesn't it? If yeah. you don't know it, if you don't like, like football or yeah. video games, it is a t- it is a tough sell. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there is no yeah egg with a face in it. So um, yeah, we worked on that with Miles and the SI team, looking a lot at um, that was more about kind of how the game works, mm. uh, particularly the kind of AI of how the the players make all their sort of decisions, um, and a lot of the merchandise and those sort of materials. And, and Ov came up, um, brought a lot of the original contracts. They got their original rejection letter from EA where they go this is rubbish they never take off so that sort of stuff on the as well <laughs> always um, keep those yeah. absolutely yeah yeah. and then we're doing um, so the next one we is a Monument Valley exhibition oh, which wow. opens yeah. week after next I think it is 14th uh, 14th 15th of December um, which will be really different which is totally different to the other two not like anything else we've done um, that's going to be really interesting yeah well a famous part of Monument Valley is the music Absolutely, yeah, and um, they're just one of the galaxy of guests that are going to this music festival thing that we're doing. Um, or we're base in um, yeah, in January, which we're really excited about, which we've never done before. Um, so a few times over the last few years, we've always done a lot of uh, music at Game City because just you know because we like music, um, and we've we've often almost thought this feels like it could be a festival in of itself you know never just kind of backed away from doing it and then this year with the dear esther tour that's going around so jess curry's show is going um to the theater royal on the 19th and we thought this this is we should just do this now because we're not doing game city we'll have a bit of a, you know, a bit of a lion so um why don't we have a run at trying to do this music festival so it's called all your bass it's happening on the 19th and 20th of january 2018 uh it's gonna be brilliant um messiah matsura's headlining um so he's doing a, if you've ever seen if you've never seen him do a show or a lecture or a gig or it's kind of like the same thing all in one it's not to be missed Uh, Rob Hubbard's in town talking about his work David Wise obviously Jess with Dear Esther and uh, the Monument Valley guys Uh, yeah and we'll be there as well yeah Mm-hmm. Going to be DJing as well. The, the, uh, head, the absolute headline attraction of the phrase building up to your set absolutely on the Friday. <laughs> like, yeah. well, Ravi DJing on Amigas and then we're doing the panels on the Saturday. Yeah, that's right. So, that, that, I'm really excited about this, especially having, I mean, we had Rob Hubbard on the show um, a couple of months ago. Right. And Robert, he doesn't make many public appearances. He, he, he doesn't. I, I mean, he's just amazing because he loves, he loves music. 
he lo- more than he loves video games. It's that sense of like yeah. he just he, he's a, he's one of the most accomplished musicians you will ever 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 encounter. And like video games, just like a thing that happened. And you look into his influence on video game music and what he did with the SID chip transformed you know that machine and transformed the sound of video games obviously along with Galway and Doug Leach and those guys for years you know and it's really interesting to hear him talk about it's, it's just like a thing he's, he's so humble isn't he he's so <laughs> he's so humble he's yeah. just such a such a lovely bloke such a lovely bloke well you've kind of covered all of the areas there with this music festival as well because you've got the modern stuff in there you've got 16 bit with the yeah play, and 32 bit as well with Prapper the Rapper and that yeah, kind of stuff yeah. going on yeah, and, and I think trying to find the... We'd like to make it an annual event, right? And, and I think it's trying to find that sort of frequency and the sort of balance of the different genres that you've got within it um, is going to be the interesting thing um, to work out really and see how people respond to that. Because, you know, because if you like video games, it doesn't necessarily mean you like all video game music any, you know, any more than if you like films, you like all film music, you know? So um, it's going to be interesting to kind of work that out and see how that, that kind of goes. So there's a lot of talks, a lot of process, a lot of gigs, a lot of actual playing, and quite a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff as well. So, yeah, we're really, really excited about it. Well, we were talking before we started recording that, you know, video game music is getting a lot of attention these days. You know, we've, we've covered on the show old video game soundtracks are getting mastered to vinyl and getting yeah. remakes and, like, you know, orchestras actually doing live performances of video game music too? Yeah, absolutely. So I was involved in a couple of the big kind of video game music live, um, they're not Tommy stuff, but a few of the other things that they did in London. And it always astonishes me how they just sell out. If you get an orchestra playing, you know, Koji Kondo stuff, um, it, it sells within like an hour. It's it's unbelievable, like thousands of and worldwide as well. I've yeah, heard of ones right. in Brazil and America and all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's it's it adds uh, uh, what is it? Maybe maybe adds some sort of legitimacy or something to it because it's kind of grown up. You know, it's a bit of that maybe. But um, yeah, it, it's an incredibly popular. Um, uh, form, incredibly popular kind of bit. Is it a form? Is it, I don't know what it is. It's a genre or a form? It's a bit of music, isn't it? But video game music is. Um, Absolutely, new instrument. <laughs> yeah, that's what it, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> and I think a lot of the stuff obviously popping up on Spotify and Apple Music, and you know, a lot of the kind of streaming service. So access to that is is getting much easier. Um, yeah, it's a really it's a really exciting moment, I think. And David Houston and Mike Bithoff, all those guys are up as well. That's me really. They're talking about how they worked on their stuff. So that's gonna be like having a designer talking to the composer and kind of looking back on like how did how like how do they work out how the music's cued and what it should be and that's gonna be a really good one. Because graphics, I mean, you talk about all video games. The first thing most people mention is the graphics, but music was such a big part of it as well. I mean, yeah. you can hear a you know a piece of like Sid music, for example, off the '64, and it just takes you right back there to being a kid again. And often it's a bit more subtle, I think, and subconscious, isn't it? The the audio in games, yeah, absolutely. Like the pace setter as well, or you know, yeah, yeah, completely. I, I think people get way, way, way too kind of overexcited about graphical progression just on the whole. We talk about how much how much better video games are. It's always about graphics, which yeah. is just like a total red herring for, for me anyway. Mm. You know, I, I, yeah, and sound is one of the hugely overlooked um, parts of that. I t- totally agree. Well, are there any other exhibitions you'd love to do or any kind of ideas that you've always wanted to do? Oh, what have we always wanted to do? I, so personally, I really want to do a Jeff Minton show. I would be there. <laughs> yeah, I just I think Jeff's work is just brilliant and it's followed me throughout my entire life and what I love about his work is how committed he is to what it is 
you know, and, and the, like, you can look at, as I was saying earlier on, you can look at psychedelia on the Vic, and you can absolutely trace a line from that all the way to the stuff he's doing today. And you it's know. still relevant as well. It's but, completely... Yeah. And, no. like, uncompromisingly, like, Space Giraffe is like, what? This is just amazing. He's, it's, it's, you know, there's a guy making what he wants to make. He doesn't care if you like it or not. He's making... And, and I just, I find that completely sort of intoxicating, you know. And, and you see it in bits of kind of indie stuff I think it's popping up now. It's really exciting to see that, that sort of uncompromising sort of vision. But because he's been doing it for decades, you know, and, and has never really diverted from that, whatever's happened, I just, I just think he's, um, he's an amazing designer. He doesn't get the credit he deserves. Um, and you can, just, you can see what the retrospective is, right, because the, there's such clear lines through it. And, and it's really exciting kind of radical work, which I really like. So for me, it's, it would, I would love to do a Minter show. I was playing uh, Polybius on uh, VR, you know, the, the game he released recently. I've not played it. Is oh, it good? It's one of the most incredible gaming yeah. experiences I've ever had. I've yeah. had a go and, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. Is it? If there's one yeah. person that was born to make stuff for VR, yeah. it, is, it, is, it is Jeff. I've not, yeah, I'd, I'd love to try it. I'm not trying, yeah. not trying Very it. Good. We even had a go on the uh, DVD player new one, one, didn't we? Yeah, he made Tempest yeah. 3000 on the new one. He, yeah, he had that yeah, set up, yeah, didn't he, last year yeah. when we were at yeah. the show with him. So. No, he's, he's, he's brilliant. What would you like to see? Oh, God, I'd love to see something maybe about worms or lemmings or something like that. I think lemmings was on so many platforms, wasn't it? And it was such a kind of a a shift in culture, especially with the music as well. And that kind of introduced it. Right. And if you're talking British as well, I mean, Lemmings, it was an iconic game. And often, because I think now there's a lot of YouTube is obviously such a massive platform for retro gaming. And a lot of new people or younger people are coming into it and only getting the American perspective from a lot of it. You know, they hear all about the NES and the Atari and that kind of thing, which is one of the reasons we started doing this show, to give a bit more coverage to European and British gaming history. Uh, But again, yeah, games like Lemmings and those, you know. Syndicate as well, but I don't think anybody had come to that. (laughs) Syndicate. Did you play Tokyo 42? Oh, no, I haven't played. I played a what is it? Uh, the new it's it's a new version of Syndicate, mm. uh, a kind of open. It's not that good. <laughs> the original Syndicate, an American amazing. Revolt as well. Amazing, yeah. amazing. Game. Or even like the local companies that we had around here, like Core, for example. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. They did some incredible games and yeah. Yeah, up in Sheffield, Gremlin. Yeah, you know, there's a lot. You know, a lot yeah. to explore from there's that a, era. Yeah, there's a really sort of hidden heritage of that stuff, um, particularly around the Midlands. You know, that that doesn't really get get the credit it deserves and i don't think that cities you know city city councils city elders um realize what they've got a lot of the times you know because they because because its success is often not necessary it's global right and it's not necessarily in you don't perceive it in the city where it is a lot of the time well, it's very interesting because i was at one of the openings of the mva and right. had the local politician uh, chris leslie the labor mp all oh, right and he Cuts it open. He goes, "My favourite game was Shadow of the Beast." <laughs> oh, <amazing. laughs> like, wow! <laughs> You're like, ah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a good assistant. It's great. Uh, <laughs> you kind of bringing back all those memories and bringing new people together as well, and creating this big gaming community. That's what we want to do. And you know, we're not. Uh, one thing's about the NVA is it's not a public funded lottery project you know i think when we opened up a lot of people thought it was like the sheffield popular music thing or it was like you know a million pounds of lottery money and it's not that it's in it's completely independent you know so uh, the, the way that we survive is by people coming to it and it's hopefully doing interesting things and people come you know coming and paying and experiencing and experiencing games and it's a video game culture as a whole isn't isn't supported by the 
it's not. I'm not saying that they're against it, but there isn't like an arts council fund for video games. Yeah, I don't think they've seen the value in it yet. No, maybe and, and in the future they will. Right, but, and yeah. and it's on the way, and um, but it's not there now, and. And and I think if we can if we can help to sort of fly the flag for that stuff, and it's not just about the, you know the kind of retro things things that happen, but also re- give a really good platform for the stuff of the future. That's what we want to do. Um, that, that, that's the, that's like the point of it for us. Like nobody's we you know we're not we're not getting like a speedboat out of it, right? It's it's the point of it is, is building that foundation. Um, can, can, we about, could we, can I talk about our Patreon that we just started? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So one, one of the things we're just looking at is, because um, people want to be a part of it, and, and we want them to be, and we want them to shape it, and we want them to give their opinions about what they want it to be. And, you know, so otherwise it's just going to be Jeff Minter shows for the next, like, decade. That's all it's going to be. <laughs> we're fine if with not, that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so am I, right? It's going to be a, crowd nat- would love it's a national <laughs> Jeff Minter museum. But, you know, it, it can't, it can't, it, it shouldn't, prob- I'm told it shouldn't be just that. What can I say? People have got no taste. So we've, um, uh, yeah, so we launched a Patreon for, for uh, literally in the last couple of days for people to um, a get involved and support in whatever way they want to, um, partially financially, but also to give their opinions and help us steer like what it should be and what it should become. Um, because because we think video game culture is important. You know, we've I've been doing this for like fifteen years now, um, and it needs new people to do it as well, new people to get involved for the aforementioned reason they just said about Jeff Minter shows endlessly um, and, and it's, you know, it's really important so there's re- like we, we need people to, to kind of get involved and, and help us with that and give their you know shape it for what it needs to be and who the, like the next people are going to be running and curating video games for everybody like who, who, who are they going to be well, we, want to, we want them to join us well, I also thought it was great that you know on the foundation you've got Sega involved as well yeah. which you know that must have been a nice bit of confidence from a big company like that to be involved absolutely we've got some great corporate patient, uh, pa- patrons patients patrons um, who are fantastically supportive so particularly like Sumo Digital uh, and obviously Ian Livingston who you spoke to um, Andy Payne a lot of those um, those folks have been hugely hugely supportive um, of our work and helped us through you know we've had some pretty pretty hairy times in the last 18 months um we're here because of their uh, their generosity, but also their belief in what the thing is, you know. Um, and, and that's really important um, to a lot of people that there's a thing now that exists. Like it's not a thing we're trying to build; it exists, and hundreds of people come to it every week. And we we know what it is, and we're trying to continually improve it, continually iterate it. And there's all the stuff we're saying about it being transparent and taking it to bits and putting it back together again. That's because we want to do that. And we want to change it. We want to iterate it. And if you know, when we get feedback from visits for those sort of things, we, we know we, we we change stuff because we've got people at work who who build things all the time. You know, that's the kind of point. Um, but but the, yeah, the, the the kind of institutional support, like you're saying, at the level of the sort of culturality, doesn't really exist for video games. So I guess if the NBA can do anything, it's demonstrating that there is a cultural value to video games above and beyond the fact that they make billions of dollars and they're bigger than film and blah blah blah, all that sort of stuff, all the money stuff, like that's all fine, um, but it doesn't really explain why games matter. And that's what that's what we're wanting to do. So if people can support us with that, we would we would love that. Well, Ian, you know it's it's fantastic what you're doing, and again, it, hopefully, in any way that we can get, you know, video games preserve the history of it and 
make people realise how important they are. I think that's a, an amazing, very worthwhile project. Oh, Thank you've you. got the uh, millionth mega there, so you've yeah. kind of got my vote. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, were you saying before about the fact that, you know, people from the UK might not have took the trip to Nottingham? This is a good excuse to do it. Yeah. And obviously we have got um, all your base coming up in January on the 19th and 20th. So we'll put all the uh, ticket information Fantastic. in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Ian, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's brilliant. It's really exciting. I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I mean, hopefully I've brought the tone down enough because next week's going to be amazing, right? So it's going to be a big one. But it's you, it's around. been interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know who it is as well. It's really <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cheers, Ian. Yeah.